Let's pray before we begin. Lord, please let us understand your word and put it in our hearts. May it shape our lives to be more like your Son. In Jesus' name we ask, Amen. I've been wrestling all week whether I ought to tell this or not. <clears throat> I, and I feel probably I shouldn't, but yet I, it is such a graphic picture of the sermon tonight. The illustration is so beautiful, I, I'm going to, and I'll be sorry after I did. It's almost like taking someone along on the honeymoon uh, to tell you something as as that goes on along this line, but I think I must. We had our graduation, and I may have mentioned some of this somewhere, but I doubt it. We had our graduation exercises for our high school here a few weeks ago, the fourth annual graduation service. I... Uh, had some folks who had to see me, and I made some appointments after graduation. I guess the graduation wasn't over till 10.15. It must have been 10.30 or 10.45 before I got back to my office, and I had several people that needed to see me after I got back to the office. About 11.15, I guess, I was counseling with a young lady with whom I had an appointment, and someone <clears throat> knocked on the door of my study. I went to the door, and I hope you won't mind me telling this. I saw David Hiles. I'd never seen David cry like he was crying. His face was completely disfigured, and if you had turned on a water faucet, you would not have, a, a dripping water faucet could not have made more a bigger puddle on the floor than David's tears were making. Now, I've known David over 20 years. I've seen him cry a few times, but I've never seen him cry like that. He was completely beside himself. I could think of a million things that must be wrong. And I said, son, what's wrong? And he said, dad, I've got to see you. Well, I said, son, I have an appointment. He said, please, dad. Just see me a minute or two. And I told the little lady who was in my office, I said, would you wait, please? I thought something terrible had happened, some tragedy had happened. And I went over to Mrs. McKinney's office, unlocked the door, and I said, come in here, son. And now Dave and I, we don't, uh, we don't Gucci-goo a great deal. Um, I mean, we've never been Gucci-gooers. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, we, we goot you some. We never goo. And, uh, but, uh, anyway, we, um, we just never have. And, uh, you know, I mean, the, the way we, uh, express our love is hitting the stomach or a knee in the groin or a kick in the pants or a sap across the head, you know. And we may meet in the hall somewhere and I'll trip him and he'll fall on his face. And that's, I love you in man language. And, uh, so, um, you fellas didn't recognize what I've been saying to you all these years, did you? <coughs> but uh, anyway, um, oh, not once a year is there a, a hug or an embrace. I think that's about enough for a father and a son. I don't think it's enough for a mother and a son, but I think it's enough for a father and a son. And... Uh, but he was absolutely beside himself. 
And I said, son, what is it? And he said, dad, those kids have just graduated. And I said, what, what about it? He said, dad, I was their youth director. And I said, I know it. What's bad about that? They ought to be crying, you know. He said, Dad, I don't have them anymore. They're gone. He said, Dad, I love those kids. He said, I've been mean. And I, all of them don't love me, but I love those kids. He said, Dad, I don't have them anymore. He said, it turned out right. He said, I'm not their youth director anymore. And he cried, and he cried, and he cried. And then, he said, that's all, that's all that. And I said, son, that's not all. Why did you come? And he said, dad, I just felt like I had to talk to somebody who could love me as much as I love them. He said, Dad, I knew you'd understand. You're a leader. He said, I won't do this anymore. Maybe. But it just felt like I had to talk to somebody who loves me as much as I love him. And I thought of that day in East Texas in the pine thicket when I first hurt like that twenty-five years ago. For the first time in my life somebody turned on me who was in my church. The Lord knows this is true. He knows it's true. He knows tonight as best I can, I love him. And he knows tonight as best I can, I'm trying to serve him. He knows I'm full of mistakes, and prone to being sometimes a little quick on the draw, a little stubborn. You don't know that, but the Lord knows it. <coughs> But he knows my heart. And I recall when I went out behind the church to a little pine thicket 25 years ago as a kid preacher. And I said, Lord, I loved him. Why did he turn on me? I loved him. A man that I love like I love my own life and whom I had complete confidence, turned on me. And I recall how I felt that night when I first learned <clears throat> that the leader, the leader has a love that is unique to leadership. No one knows what it's like until he leads people. And is misunderstood. A leader is never... Brother Lester Roloff said one time, he said, Brother Jack, he said, you'll always be 25 years ahead of your generation. Now, I'm not sure that's true. 
But nobody ever knows how a leader feels and how much he loves until he becomes a leader. I was in the office last night counseling a young lady. I won't call her name. Maybe two or three will know who she is. Very fine young lady. She's had some tri- troubles and trials. She's attempted suicide a few times. <clears throat> it looked like for a while we just gave up on her. I mean all of us, her family. We just, just all but gave up on her. And finally one night in desperation I said, okay, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just see her whether I can't have time or not. I'll just see her. And I've seen her and seen her and seen her and seen her. For years, several years now, I've counseled and counseled and I've just seen sometimes just a so little growth and little, feel like I'm doing just a little good and, and, and then yet, and just, it looked like that, that it was hopeless and then I'd see a little hope and then hopeless again and then I'd see a little hope. And last night she was talking to me and she said, she said, preacher, I want you to know I love you. And I said, I love you too. You're one of my kids. And she said, Preacher, why do you love us so much? Why do you love us so much? She said, Why would you take a person like me, all the meanness I've done, all the trouble I've caused you? Why would you keep on seeing me and keep on seeing me and keep on seeing me? Yeah, you just sort of have to ask the mother who loves the wayward son whose love is not returned. Or the father who grieves over the daughter who's gone astray, whose love is not returned. Did you know true love need not be returned to exist? True love is in the breast of the lover, not in the actions of the object. Love never faileth. Love never faileth. And uh, I got thinking, <clears throat> and I've thought so often lately about this. Mrs. Uh, Mrs. John R. Rice, God bless her, she's, she, she uh, cornered me one day and she said, Dr. Hiles, I want to tell you how much I appreciate what you meant to my husband. She called him John R. Now, you better not do that. He, you have a full-page ad blasting you in the sword of the Lord. But she calls him John R. She said, I appreciate it. She said, Dr. Hiles, do you know what you mean to John R.? And I said, no. She said, John R. is lonely at the top. Lonely at the top. That was the, that was the problem with David that night. He was lonely at the top. Misunderstood. His love sometimes misunderstood. Like all leaders love. Like all leaders. He, she said, Dr. Hiles, she said, uh, she said, God gave you to John R. so he wouldn't be so lonely in his last years at the top. Those nights through the years he's gone back to his motel, half the crowd hating him and nobody to understand, nobody to love him like he loves them. And those times when he's opened his mail and more than half of the letters we hate mail, cursing and slanderous Poison pen letters. He's read it. Every letter. 
and tried to answer. She said, Brother Jack, he sat there through the years with nobody to love him like he's loved them. I know something about that. Everybody here who leads at all, who has a real heart of a leader, and every true pastor knows what I'm talking about tonight. I've walked from this pulpit many times, and I've said, Lord, I wish somebody understood. I wish somebody understood. I didn't mean to be mean. I didn't mean to be unkind. I didn't mean to be hard. I didn't mean to hurt anybody. I just wish somebody understood. And then I thought, of one whom no one really understands. For a John Rice, there's a Bob Jones Sr. to walk with him a bit of his life who understands. For a Jack Hiles, there's a John Rice who can understand. For a Bob Billings, there's a Wendell Evans. For a C.W. Fist, there's a John Colston. There are many pastors who can understand the burdens of a pastor, many college administrators who can understand the burdens of other college administrators. I put my hand on David's shoulder and I said, Son, I want to talk to you for a while. I said, You're lonely tonight. And in some ways I hate to see it happen to you when you're so young. I hate to see you you know, you don't mind fighting your own battles, but, but you know, nobody likes to see their kids scuffed up, I guess. But I said, son, you never will. I get this. I said, you never will be able to fully, I get this, understand Jesus and give him what he needs and what he wants until You've walked alone for a while. You never will. You never will. You know, stop and think about it. In the last verse of John chapter 7, it said, it said that every man went to his own house. Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. He had no place to go. He had nobody to understand. I recall when Linda was dying. In fact, the very same thing this little seven-year-old girl died with hemorrhaging uh, after tonsillectomy and your boy died with uh, the boy, wasn't it? Several years ago. <clears throat> it was what Linda had out here at Dyer Mercy Hospital. Now they will forget how I felt. I said, I wish I wish somebody could get off that elevator could understand my heart. But nobody understands Jesus' heart. I mean, nobody fully understands him. And I talked to Dave a while and I explained it to him. How that, that if we can be so lonely, and if we can give so much, maybe we can understand a little bit of the loneliness of Christ. You never understand the fact uh, never sympathized with Jesus, but he, the fact he was being dis, the fact that he was despised of men, unless you have been despised by men, you never understand the loneliness of Christ. Enter into his loneliness unless you know what it is to feel 
the knife of loneliness piercing through your breast. You never know what it is to be acquainted with the sorrows of Jesus and understand his sorrows until the bitterness of sorrows has passed through your taste buds. Don't you see what I'm saying? We say, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Jesus is the friend you need. He satisfies all your needs. But nobody ever talks much about Jesus needing somebody. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Jesus needs somebody to fellowship with him. I'd like to be one. I've said so often. When the battle was a little rough, or the hours were a little lonely, I've said so often, Jesus, I hope maybe, maybe I can sort of be to you a little bit of what you need. Because I understand maybe you're suffering a little more. Moses was that way. (coughs) Bible said, Moses and God talked to each other as friends. Abraham was that way. Three times in the Bible the Lord says, Abraham, my friend. Paul was that way and tells how it happened in Philippians chapter 3. Paul talks about the fellowship that he has with Christ. Now, not just for Paul's benefit, but for his benefit. For if you remember, the reason God made us in the first place was for fellowship with himself. God hungered for fellowship. When that fellowship was broken in the Garden of Eden, there was a certain loneliness that our Lord endured. And Paul lists, <coughs> Paul lists what it cost him. Now listen to me. If you are going to be to Jesus what he needs, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. Paul tells us what it cost him. I'll just give you a few of them. I'm paraphrasing what he wrote. In uh, verses about verses 4 through 8, he said first he was circumcised at eight days. Paul said, I was a Jew of Jews, circumcised at eight days. Now, Paul said, I was no Jewish proselyte, someone who was proselyted or became a Jew after he belonged to another religion like the Ethiopian eunuch or somebody else who uh, (coughs) was baptized or circumcised when he crossed the religious lines. Paul said, I'm not even like an Ishmaelite who was circumcised at the age of 13. Paul said, I am a Jew. I was circumcised at eight days. He said, I was that. Then he goes on to say, he said, not only was I not a proselyte, he said, my parents weren't proselytes either. He said, I was a Jew, reared in a Jewish home. I was circumcised not after the age of 13 like the Ishmaelites. Not at, not at, 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 uh, at, at conversion, if you please. Converted, being converted from one religion to Judaism. Uh, uh, <coughs> like the proselytes. He said, I was circumcised at eight days like a Jewish boy should. But he said, not only I was I, but my father was circumcised at eight days too. He said, I am pure stock and my dad was pure stock and my mom was pure stock. He goes farther than that. He says, I'm a descendant of Jacob. Not of Abraham alone, but Jacob. I came from Jacob. I'm one of the Israelites. Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. I'm one of the Israelites. They said, that isn't all. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe that gave Israel her first king. The tribe, the tribe that never swerved in her, in her allegiance 
The tribe who after the captivity led with Judah in the rebuilding of the temple in Ezra chapter 1 and verse 5. The tribe of Esther and Mordecai. The tribe within whose boundaries stood the holy city itself. The exalted tribe. Paul said, I was a Jew circumcised at eight days. So was my dad. My mom is a Jew by birth and by rearing. He said, I am, am a, uh, <coughs> I'm a descendant of Jacob. He said, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. He said, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, the word the there is not in the original. Hebrew of the Hebrews. What it means is, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. He meant that his family was, though they lived in, in, in Tarsus, Paul was in Tarsus, young folks, listen to me while I preach. Hey, fellas, listen to me while I preach. You can court later on. You look at me. He said, I am a, a, a Jew and my family were Hebrews of Hebrews. He said, we spoke Hebrew in our home. We didn't live in Israel or Palestine. We lived in Tarsus, but we spoke Hebrew in our home. He said, in our home, we observe all the religious ceremonies. We are Hebrew speaking, Hebrew, Hebrews, Hebrew of Hebrews, he said. But that isn't all. He said, I was reared in Jerusalem under the outstanding teacher of Judaism, Gamaliel himself. Not only was I born in my family and we were and, and born and my family was a Hebrew of Hebrews, but they sent me to Jerusalem. None of the great Gamaliel, I sat at his feet. Paul said, I was a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He said, I was a choicest tribe. I was of Jacob. I was a real Israelite. But Paul goes on to say that isn't all. He said, I chose to be a Pharisee. I chose to be in the outstanding, strictest sect of Judaism. Now get it. Paul was born a Jew, circumcised after eight days, son of a descendant of Jacob himself, of the tribe of Benjamin, of a family that spoke Hebrew, though they did not live in Palestine. Chose to be a Pharisee, but that isn't all. He said, I was an energetic Pharisee. I gave all I had. I was zealous. He said, I gave it all. He was in one of the top 70 men, and no doubt even higher than that, in all of Judaism. And Paul said, one day I bundled it all up and put it all in a sack and twisted that sack up and lit a match to it and threw it in a garbage can and gave it all up. Why? I may know him. That I may know him. He said, I took my education and I threw it in the garbage can and I counted it as, as dung. Dung was sometimes called, it was human refuse. Sometimes it was garbage and it was always dog food. He said, I took my education. I counted dog food for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I say the administrators of our college, I will not, we will not, we will not, we will not bowed down to the golden image of secular rules and and and, uh, and accreditation at Hiles Anderson College or Hammond Baptist High School. We'll not do it. We'll build a school so superior to the accreditation bureau they ought to seek accreditation from us. Paul said, I took I took my my heritage. I threw it in the garbage can. Why? That I may know him. He said, I took my background. I counted but dung. Why? 
that I may know Him. He said, I took my training at home and counted the dung. Why? That I may know Him. He said, I took my Pharisee position and my membership of the Sanhedrin and counted the dung. Why? That I may know Him. Paul said, I took my background and my culture and my refinement and I counted the dung. Why? That I may know Him. Paul said, I took my scholarship and my training and my degrees and counted the dung. Why? That I may know Him. Paul said, I'd rather know Him. I don't mean just be saved. I mean know Him. Know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Know Him deeper and deeper and deeper. He said, I'd rather know Him than have a Ph.D. I'd rather know Him than be in the Sanhedrin. I'd rather know Him than have scholarship. I'd rather know Him than have uh, a, be a blue blood or have pedigrees. He said, I'm willing to cast aside everything in my life if I can just get to know Him better and better and better and better. Why? He knew him a little bit. Brother, when you know him some and know him a little bit, you want to know him more. Nothing else much matters then. You won't care much then. Why? Everything else will be done. You count it dung, garbage, refuse, dog food. Oh, tonight I'm talking to hundreds of people who are spending most of your life eating dog food. Dog food. You have one great goal in life. I've got to get that train. I've got to get that degree. I've got to become a scholar. Now, that's no good at all unless it lets you know Jesus better. I wouldn't have a school where the students couldn't know Jesus better when they graduated than they did before they came. Dumb garbage! You young folks trying to be popular. That's God dog food compared to knowing Jesus better. You young girls, your great goal in life is beauty. Oh, you don't even feel good if you don't look pretty in the daytime. Your great goal is to be a beauty queen. That's dog food compared to knowing Him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Dog food, garbage, dung. Compared to the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ or knowing Him better and better and better. May I sum it up in three simple words as he summed it up. How did Paul learn to have the right kind of fellowship so that Jesus would delight to see him coming? In the first place, it was suffering. Suffering. You will never be to Jesus what he needs unless you suffer for him. I was stunned as a kid preacher when I realized this. It never dawned on me that everybody didn't love preachers. Why, my mother used to say to me, son, if a preacher says it, it's so. Now, the preacher's not always right, but that's not a bad thing to say to your kids. Not a bad thing to say. Let me say this, preacher's not God, and what he says is not always true. He thinks it is. Your preacher thinks it is. But you, you'll never, listen, you will never, you will never, do a wiser thing than to build the confidence of your children in the men of God. You never will. You shake your, you, you shake your children's faith and authority. Let me say something. Though this man over here is not perfect, but Dr. Hilton, you'll be wise never to remind your children he's not. And though Brother Sullivan is not perfect, you'll be wise never let your children know he's not. The Dr. Biddings is not perfect, you'll be wise. Never let your children know he's not. And though Brother Colston and Brother Vineyard and Brother Bordway 
and Dave Hiles and Dr. Evans and all of them, anybody who has authority or leadership, you'll be wise never, never, never to be critical of anybody who's in a place of leadership over your children and who hold in their hands somewhat of the destiny of your boys and girls. <clears throat> I was stunned. I couldn't believe it. I got thinking. Strange thing. Listen to this. Dr. Billings, I pastored five churches. I got wounded tonight. On a door of all things. There's a, there's a place where you push the door. Back here is loose. I just pushed the door. And I got wounded. I want to kiss it. You do? Uh, but I pastored five churches. Three of them were great churches. This church, Miller Road Baptist Church of God in Texas, and the Grange Hall Baptist Church of Marshall, Texas. I pastored three great churches. I pastored five churches. I get this. The two churches that were not the great ones were the only two where I've had a unanimous call. Not a single moment in either of those two churches did I ever have one minute's trouble. I do not guess I cried myself to sleep one night while I was pastoring those two churches. In the three churches that have been great churches, I've been through hell at least one time. You know why? I'll tell you why. God can't use you too much until you've suffered for it. Preachers all across this country say, Boy, I'd love to have a church like First Baptist Church of Hammond. I don't think you mean it. Young folks back in the back, listen while I'm preaching. I don't think you mean that. I don't think you mean it. First Baptist Church in Hammond is the greatest church on the face of God's earth, of that I'm convinced. But for a couple of years, brother, a lot of us in this room paid a lot of, of price to make this church what it is. This man over here on the end, Ray Boardway. I won't even go into it because it'd be embarrassing. But he paid a mighty big price to help make this church what it is. And there are people in this room tonight who 14 years ago stuck their necks out for me and for what they believed and what they thought I believed and for the ministry that I was trying to put in this church 14 years ago, the 13th of July, it was. They laid their necks and 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 deserted is were deserted by friends of a lifetime. Why? I'll tell you why. They wanted to have a great soul winning church here on this corner. That's why. Somebody has to suffer. Somebody has to suffer. I can't be what Jesus wants me to be unless I suffer for him. And neither can you. And Stephen was stoned and suffered for Jesus. It was then he saw. Jesus at the right hand of the Father. When John was exiled on Patmos and was alone for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, it was then that he saw the glories of the revelation. When Isaiah was persecuted and people's words were like briars and stones beat upon his head while he preached, it was then that he saw the Lord high and holy and lifted up and his train filled the temple. When the Hebrew children were in the fiery furnace for not bowing down and worshiping the 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 the, the, uh, the 
gold and the, uh, the idol of, of the plain of Dura. It was then, following the fire furnace, they saw the Son of Man walking among them. And Jacob went to meet Esau and was alone, afraid for his life, crossing the river Jabbok. It was then that Jacob wrestled with God and saw God. I laugh a lot. I cut up a lot. You know, I, I haven't been wounded like this in years. Of all the things, ways to get wounded, opening the door back there. Thing, several screws out of that thing back there. Reminds the night I was preaching, and I, 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 I was down in Mississippi, and I hit the pulpit, and my hand went through. And uh, all the way through. And they finally came and sawed me out, but I was bleeding. And, and I, I never was any more active than I was that night. And I had, that night, I had, uh, I had, uh, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to do like this. I don't know why, but I, in the first place, and in the second place. Looked around, and after about half the sermon was over, it looked like the choir had measles. <laughs> I had thrown blood all over the choir. Would you like to be to Jesus what he want, what he needs? You'd have to suffer a bit. You'd have to suffer and pay the price. You know, I cut up a great deal, and you know, and I, and I enjoy life. I don't, I hardly, I don't see over two days a year that I'm melancholy, about two days a year. Sometimes not that many. But one reason is I've learned to, I've learned to enjoy life in spite of suffering. I, for example, do you know that up in Minnesota, Larry Loser's had trouble up there with the church. Richard Angwin has a few people up in his church in St. Paul giving him trouble. And some of Larry Loser's disgruntles and Richard Angwin's got together and printed a 13-page, I think it was, document against me, most of it. <laughs> I mean, how in the world I get involved? <laughs> I mean, me. And they said, they said, Hyle sent Ang- Angwin up here. And uh, to, to, with his uh, divide and conquer philosophy, for Hiles was planning to take over Minnesota. <laughs> Man, I can't even take over Hessville. <laughs> Minnesota. They said <clears throat> Hiles is going to take over Minnesota. He sent Loser up here. He's a legalist. He's a bigot. Good night. I thought they were trying to get rid of them, not me. <laughs> the simple truth is, I told Richard Angwin he shouldn't go to Minnesota, and I thought he was wrong when he went, and I still think he shouldn't have gone. But I sent him up. I was minding my own business in the First Baptist Church of Rosemount, Minnesota, one morning at a Bible conference up there when a fellow walked in and said, I belong to the pulpit committee of the First Calvary Baptist Church of St. Paul. And he said, I'm an p- airplane pilot. And he said, this is the chairman of the pulpit committee. Would you help us find a preacher? That's the way I'm trying to take over Minnesota. I told him, Earl Dukes, he went up and preached the sermon. Nobody could understand what he was saying. His southern drawl. <coughs> he told him about Larry Loser, and Larry Loser went up there. And I didn't even know Larry Loser was going up there. But I sent him up there in my plot to take over Minnesota. I mean, you wait, you mark it down, you wait, I dare you, I dare, you wait, you will see it. If you don't see it now, you will see it before it's all over. Jack Hiles will be blamed for Watergate. You wait and see. <laughs> you wait and see. 
You what? Just as sure as I'm standing here, when when the, when the House representative votes to impeach, they'll impeach me out of this church instead of Nixon out of the out of the, out of the president. Say, don't you ever get bitter? Not anymore. I, I mean it. Richard Angwin read me enough. I could sue those folks. I could sue them up there. I could pay off our college. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> I could pay off our college. There's no way to live. Now, I, you could say, and that's just one thing. Sixteen people came to my office last week. Out of the 85 or 90 who came, 16 of them. I, I, I took a count because five in a row came one week not long ago. Sixteen of them told me somebody hated me before they left. Now, you know, you know, there's some money. About as funny as a plane crash. <coughs> Say, do you like it? No, I don't like it. I don't like it. I'll tell you what, if a little suffering would make me to be able to understand Jesus' suffering better, then I'd be glad to take it. Paul said, I took all these things. He said, my family couldn't understand me anymore. He said, my race couldn't understand me. My professor, my college... My educational institution couldn't understand me. My friends couldn't understand me. I was counted as dead. He said, took all of it, all the training. I'd worked my way to the top, took it all, and put it in the garbage can, counted as dung, garbage, refuse, dog food. Why? So I could know Jesus better. You folks that won't, won't be a nut on the job, you, you won't ever be able to be what Jesus needs. Oh, he'll give you what you need, but you'll never have the joy. I recall... One of the darkest hours of my life. I went outside, middle of the night, started walking. Nobody was awake much. Where I was walking, nobody was there. And I said, I guess I'm just as lonely as a fellow can be. And then I felt a hand. On me. I looked up to see who it was that put his hand on me. I noticed that his hand had a scar in it right there. And I said, Who art thou? And he said, I'm Jesus. He said, I've been out here all along. I said, Jesus, you mean you've been reproached? Yes, I was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Did you know I can say this? My fellowship with him has been sweeter in in direct proportion to the times I've suffered and been lonely. No, you'll never know him till you suffer. People say, Well, for the house I go to I go to a high school, public high school, and if I wore if I wore a, short, a long dresses down to my knee, they'd laugh at me. Well let him laugh. Suffer with Jesus. Well, you say I work out on the job, and if I did, if I got my hair cut like uh, other like you supposed to get your hair cut, they'd laugh at me. Let them laugh. Suffer for Jesus, some. 
But you sit in the house. If I didn't go to picture shows, or if I didn't let that boy neck and pet, and, and uh, uh, pet me and peck away on me and claw me and paw me with his wicked hands, I couldn't get a date. Then be an old maid for Jesus. Suffer. Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sail through bloody seas? No, I must win. Despite if I would gain, increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain supported by thy word. Suffer. Paul, you are such an encouragement to Jesus. He enjoyed your fellowship so much. How did you get that way? Paul said first to suffer. And then he said, I died. I died. You never understand the pains of Calvary till you die. You never understand the nails and spikes in his hands and feet till you die. You never understand the crown of thorns on your, on his head till you die. You never understand the gasping for breath till you die. You never understand the crying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me till you die. You'll never, 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 never understand what Jesus went through till you die. You can say with Paul, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, Christ who liveth in me. Die, 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 die to self. Die to gossip. Die to hurt feelings. Die to vindication. Die to revenge. Die to fighting back. Die to criticism. Die to slander. Die to self. Die to selfishness. Die, die, die. Only in death can you understand the Savior and be what he needs in fellowship with himself. Die. Paul Rader, (coughs) over here in Chicago, lay dying. He was sick for a long time. His wife was by his bedside. A friend came. They were acting a little spooky. Because he was dying on his deathbed, they felt. Paul Rader said, who's doing the dying around here? I died 28 years ago. I think he said 28 years ago. This friend came back later. Paul Rader was getting weaker and weaker. The friend came in, hushed, quiet. His wife whispered to him. Paul Ritter looked up after they'd been a little spooky for a while and said, Who's doing the dying around here? I died 28 years ago. Friend came again. Paul Ritter was just about in heaven. Friend walked in, reverent-like, as all of us do in times like that. There was a hush and not much was said. Paul Ritter lifted up his head and in a raspy voice said, Who's, who's doing the dying around here? I died 28 years ago. Paul Ritter was, died and they said his friend was there. And they said that he died in such a majestic way that his wife looked to the friend and said, Who did the dying around here? He died. 28 years ago. Let me tell you the kind of church that will have no complaining. A church of people who die for Jesus. Tell you the kind of church that will have no hurt feelings. A church of people who die for Jesus. And when you come to the place to where you die, you die to self. You die to your own wants. You die to lust. 
You die to your own needs. You die to your own will. You die to your own reputation. You die to your own popularity. You die to your own things. You die to your own acquisition. You die. Then you can say, Jesus, I believe I understand now. Jesus will delight in fellowship with you when you die. Paul, how could you be to Jesus what he needed? I suffered. I wanted to know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. I suffered. I died. How else? Paul said, I rose. I rose. Here's what he meant. Paul said, I was able to be to Jesus what he needed first because I was willing to suffer as he suffered. Second, I was willing to die as he died. Third, he said, I rose to live a resurrected life. What does it mean? It means the Apostle Paul said, I lived above the world. I lived the resurrected life. Oh, these secular lives of ours. These materialistic lives of ours. Minds on things beneath instead of things above. Minds on appetites and desires and pleasures and self-gratification instead of upon Him and His work and His cause. God, give us a generation of preachers who walk with God, who know God, who keep their minds on things above so our people can be called to live resurrected lives. Not lives in the gutter, but lives above. Not lives on things, but lives above. Most of our talking has nothing to do with the resurrected life. Nothing. Nothing. You know, it was a good day in my life. <laughs> Fellas, when she comes back in, find her a seat back there. It was a good day in my life, or back here one. It was a good day in my life when I found out what this tongue was for. <coughs> Let me say something to you. <coughs> Did you know <coughs> what, a pro- what prostitution is? Prostitution is really the sacrilege of the body. Using the body in a way that that is not pleasing to God and the way that God did not intend it to be used. Now, there are other things of your body besides your organs of reproduction. Christian churches are full of prostitutes of the tongue. God gave us a tongue. He lets us articulate in speech. The dog that wags his tail can wag his tail and groan and bark, but he can't speak. Glory to God. He can't speak. Glory to God. The fish who swims in the sea can wiggle, but he cannot say, Hallelujah! The cat who walks through the yard and down the alley can meow, but the cat cannot say, Praise the Lord! The cow in the field can move, and the sheep can bat, but only the man, only the man, did God give the ability to speak with his tongue. Why? Because he wanted there to be one creature who had an object with which he could praise his name. And God gave us a tongue. 
and gave us the ability to articulate that tongue. Why? So we could praise him. When you use your tongue one time to criticize somebody, you prostitute a part, a part of your body. When you use your tongue to curse God's name, you prostitute a part of your body. When you use your tongue to tell some filthy story, you prostitute a part of your body. One day I, I found in my Bible, I found Isaiah 57, 19, Hebrews 13, 15, which speaks about the fruit of the lips. The fruit of the lips. The fruit of the lips. And one day I decided I was going to make the fruit of my lips not cactus, but figs. Not prickly pears, but pomegranates. And I promised God that I would not use this tongue to gossip or these ears to listen to it. I dare you, I double-dog dare you to come to me with a juicy bit of gossip. I double-dog dare you. I'll walk away from you so fast you'll wonder what, 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 what chokes you and the dust of my heels get in your nostrils. I only have one life to live. I've lived 40, almost 48 years of that life. I only have 22 of my three score and 10 left. I do not have enough days to spend one day sitting in judgment. Let me tell you something. Listen carefully to this. That person who breaks down another to you will not ever be able to take the place of that other in your life. We said again. The person who, to, who criticizes another to you. I get this. And he causes you to lose some confidence in the other. In the first place, he's a thief. But whatever, he, whatever it is, that person who's a critic, when you trade the person you used to love for that person, you will never be able to substitute him for the other person. I know many preachers, not me, thank God, I have the most loyal, faithful people in America. I know many preachers who people have, have criticized and slandered. And they go to somebody in the church who loves the pastor, who has confidence in, not as a perfect man, but as a, but as God's man and a sincere man. And the confidence is shaken. What happens? The, the, the people lose the confidence in the pastor, but the kind of person that would break the confidence is not a strong enough person or a good enough Christian to take his place. And you're left with him. Oh, let me tell you, if we'd ever get the place to where, and I, I didn't mean, I, I didn't intend to preach on the tongue tonight, but oh, if we could just t get the place to where we would talk of things above, the resurrected life. Think of things above the resurrected life. Live on things above the resurrected life. Here's what happens. A person comes to a church like this and gets saved or joins by that. Now listen to this, because some of you are right in this cycle somewhere. Well, all of you are somewhere in this cycle. But a person comes to a church like this and gets saved or joins the church. He loves God. He's wrapped up in the church, but he needs some friends. I get this. He has no friends, and so he's, he's alone a lot. 
And he gets to know God. Oh, the joy of salvation and the sweetness of the Bible. What? One reason he has no friends. And then somebody invites him out to eat. And then he gets in a... Thank you for listening. And if you like this, please subscribe and consider liking my Facebook page and joining my group, Jesus Answers Prayer. May God bless your day. Hello, we are Mark and Pearl Lambert, and we are the ministers of Jesus Answers Prayers. If you like this ministry, please help support it. The link to donate is found in the description below. Thank you and God bless.